Well, hello and welcome back to Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight. We are the retro show that talks about everything and anything having to do with the glorious golden years of the baby boomer growing up generation. We talk all about everything involving movies, books, radio, TV, and all the American pop culture from A to Z, including things that went on in Azusa. I'm Mike. I'm Smitty. And I'm George. George is here today and he's looking good. But first, before we move any further into the story, picture a man, a unique inhabitant of a small suburban dot on the map of the universe, a man with a dream that is hidden deep within the audio catacombs of his broadcast radio studio. Submitted for your approval and listening enjoyment, enter Mr. Gilbert Smitty Smith. Yes, thank you, Mike, for that wonderful introduction. Well, as you have guessed now by the theme music that you just heard, we're going to do this program all about the Twilight Zone and Rod Serling, its creator. And this is a topic that uh, we could be going on for days and days, so we're going to try to cover some highlights because it's such a popular, popular, iconic item even to this day. So let's get started, first of all, looking back at the creator of the Twilight Zone, Rod Serling, and a few notes about his life and his career. Rod Serling was born on Christmas Day, December 25th, 1924, in Syracuse, New York. He spent most of his childhood in Binghamton. His family moved there in 1926. Rod Serling exhibited a uh, real interest in performing as a very small child. His father and his mother encouraged his uh, his interest, uh, along with his brother, his uh, older brother, Robert. And uh, Serling used to entertain himself for hours by acting out dialogue from magazines or movies. And uh, he was always had a very, very vivid imagination. Rod Serling was interested in radio and in writing from a very early age. And a couple of his, his heroes, people that we remember from the golden age of radio, Arch Obler and Norman Corwin, two of his favorite writers. He did some... Uh, did some staff work at a radio station in Binghamton and was involved in writing. During uh, his uh, senior year in high school, he was accepted into college. However, because the United States was involved in World War II, he uh, enlisted uh, right after graduation from Binghamton Central High School. He graduated there in 1943. Rod Serling spent a lot of his military career in the Philippines, in the Philippine island of Leyte, and uh, part of the 11th Airborne Division. This uh, time that he spent in the Philippines during the Second World War shaped his writing and his political views to a, to a great extent. He saw death while he was in the Philippines in the midst of, of battle in the hands of his enemies, uh, in the hands of the enemies, and uh, he saw a lot of freak accidents, uh, a lot of his fellow servicemen who were killed. A very difficult time that it would be for anybody to, uh, to endure, and Rod Serling endured during that that time period. In fact, later on, as we're all well aware, Rod Serling set some of his Twilight Zone episodes during that time period of the Second World War in the midst of, of battle. And Rod Serling suffered two wounds while he was in Leyte, one in his wrist and one in his kneecap, something that bothered him for the remainder of his life. He was part of the occupation force in Japan and received the Purple Heart, Bronze Star, and the Philippine Liberation Medal after the end of the war. He uh, had flashbacks during uh, his life as a result of his wartime experiences. 
it uh, affected him with nightmares and uh, he said at one point that he was bitter about that time period that when he ended his career in the service and he began to write he became a writer to get these things off his chest to to move on move past that he used the uh, the GI bill at that time to uh, enroll in Antioch College in Yellow Springs Ohio and he uh, began to be interested in theater and then to broadcasting he changed his major to literature and earned a bachelor of arts degree in 1950 as part of his uh, studies, he began working at the campus radio station and began to uh, appear in many performances, began to direct and write many of the episodes that he, that he worked in at, at the radio station, a lot of drama that he uh, was a part of. He met his wife, Carol Kramer, at the university, and uh, together he, uh, Rod Serling and Carol had uh, two daughters, Jody and Anne. And while he was in college, Rod Serling won his first accolade as a as a writer. He submitted a script to the Dr. Christian program, which was a very popular program on radio back in that time period on CBS. And he, he won an award with that. He won a trip to New York City and $500 for his radio script. Rod Serling afterward began to be a professional writer. He earned $75 a week working for radio station WLW in Cincinnati, Ohio. Rod Serling believed that radio was not living up to its potential. He said, Radio, in terms of drama, dug its own grave. It aimed downward. It had become cheap and unbelievable, and it willingly settled for second best. He thought that there were very few radio writers that would be remembered for their literary contributions. He entered the world of television writing, and in 1955, the television program Craft Television Theater broadcast a program based on one of Serling's scripts. It was called Patterns the program that would change his life. From that point forward, he became known as a very mainstream writer and very much in demand for his, for his writing work. Rod Serling um, also wrote another very well-remembered script, which we have talked about on our program before, for the television series Playhouse 90, and that was Requiem for a Heavyweight in 1956, garnering much praise from critics of that time period. Rod Serling began to be upset by the fact that uh, he saw television sponsors, sponsors of television programs, editing and censoring programs. Things were deleted that they didn't like, that went against whatever they were selling, whatever item or whatever their product was. So he began to become increasingly frustrated with the way that television was being written, how it was being handled. And in order to have a little bit more creative freedom, he turned to creating The Twilight Zone, and it was uh, quite a, a departure from his earlier work and from what was on television at that time. George, let me turn it over to you. We've kind of given a, a little bit of, of a thumbnail biography here of Rod Serling up to The Twilight Zone. I know you had some other notes uh, that you wanted to share with us. Why don't you go ahead and, and share some things with us? Well, Gilbert, I think that you captured it very succinctly that this was a creative soul, a creative soul who struggled mightily with the frustrations associated with corporate life, which, by the way, transcends generations. It's not something that is unique to the 21st century nor even to the decade of the 90s. It's old always been there. And certainly when we look at the life and the career of Rod Serling, this comes through. 
very mightily. I would also note that Serling had a very distinct style that to this day resonates with everyone of all ages, and that is it was known for clarity, for concision, and sharp tempo. Indeed, you can see that his best works are associated with uh, films that were of a shorter duration. Indeed, however, one of the most interesting aspects of his career and his life is that we can actually look at three different episodes that embody that life and career. As you already noted, there was Patterns, which featured Everett Sloan. It talks about the young executive on the rise, climbing the corporate ladder. Then later in The Twilight Zone, there is the classic episode featuring Gig Young in the lead role for Walking Distance. This is the young executive now at the peak of his career, but struggling with a midlife crisis. And then later in his post-Twilight Zone career, Night Gallery, there was an award-winning episode titled They're Tearing Down Tim Riley's Bar featuring William Wyndham. This now we have an executive at the end of his career literally being kicked to the curb. And so we can see that he expressed his frustrations as being a creative soul, having to deal with the nuances of the corporate world. And it is seen clearly in the body of his work, with these three episodes being the standouts. Ron Serling certainly reflected the frustration and his disappointment with how things were structured in the in the television business of that time period. And so, as we mentioned earlier, he began The Twilight Zone in that classic series began on October 2nd, 1959, created by Rod Serling, aired on CBS for all of its five seasons. There were the first three seasons were half hour programs. The fourth season was were our programs and the fifth season returned once again to half hour programs. Uh, a very interesting time. You know, George, we were George and Mike, we were talking about uh, also the uh, the state of television in the, during that time period in the very late 1950s. I guess really the the golden age of live television production was ending. Playhouse 90 was still on the air, but really things such as Kraft Television Theater and Studio One, all those live anthology programs were coming to an end. Television had kind of evolved or devolved, I suppose we could say, into an era of westerns, quiz shows, and canned situation comedies. So that was the majority of what was being seen on television at that time. All of a sudden, from left field, enter the Twilight Zone, this program that has a completely different twist to it. Kind of a sci-fi show, but not really a sci-fi show, but just something totally different. What I think made the show so unique, Gilbert, was that he was able to take seemingly ordinary situations with ordinary people in everyday life and suddenly making it extraordinary. As you said, it added perhaps a a science fiction twist, maybe a paranormal aspect or something that was in the realm of fantasy. He was even able to weave in religious and spiritual themes. And so basically the Twilight Zone formula, if there was one, was basically a sense of irony, a surprise ending, but also it carried with it a moral. Because this was a man of honor, of dignity, and integrity. And so he could never really see himself as being a corporate shill trying to just play to the audience for advertising purposes. You're absolutely right, George, because a lot of the episodes, and I think everybody has seen just about every Twilight Zone episode that was ever done because it's such a popular, popular program to this day. The most interesting and the most intriguing programs are the ones that have an ironic ending, something that you're not expecting. 
And you're right. There's always morals, the wanting to treat uh, your fellow human beings with respect, doing right instead of wrong. And oftentimes uh, his scripts focus on that. Well, you know, the best form and the highest form of commendation and praise is to pattern your work after somebody who was a role model. And Rod Serling gave inspiration to so many writers that came along, and especially in American television and, for that matter, European television long after the Twilight Zone episodes were over. Uh, we, you fellas talked one area about the sci-fi genre, some of the uh, metaphysical, some of the uh, beyond subjects he talked about. And I'm going to play the role here, not as devil's advocate, but as USC Film School alumni when I tell you Rod Serling, to me, was a socio-political commentary genius, to me, in each and every episode. I've studied most every episode, but he paved the way to so many other TV shows that used his idea format, his germination of a thought. And Rod Serling was so multifaceted, but Gene Roddenberry credited Rod Serling with being the inspiration for Star Trek. There's no doubt about that. Because Star Trek would take very slightly, very slightly, they'd take an issue of today or when they were in filming, they would take a current event and they would build a script around it and they would adapt it to the future. Now think of that process, if you can. And for one example, remember the episode where the inhabitants of this one planet, half of their faces were white and the others were black? I think Frank Gorshin was in that episode. Yes, he was. It was a commentary on black and whites is what it was. It was a, comment, it was a racial commentary, that, that particular episode. There were a lot of Star Trek episodes like that, but those went back to some of, and Smitty, you mentioned some of the Twilight Zone episodes where... Uh, Eye of the Beholder? Yes, yes, Eye of the Beholder. That was a social commentary, fellas, yes. about we don't, we weren't all born beautiful and, and beauty in the eye of the beholder. But you think of the work that this man did and the ideas that went through his head. Of course, his, his despicable view of CBS in general, uh, and I think you nailed it too, Smitty, if he, if he submitted a teleplay that had something that the suits up at CBS or the advertisers, the sponsors, felt offensive or degrading or somewhat controversial, they would kill it. He would be infuriated, and he made the statement at several conventions, one including the Santa Barbara Writers' Convention way, way back. I did not attend that one, so I won't take credit for hearing it, but he was known to say, I'm sleeping with the devil, but that doesn't mean I have to give spawn to his children, referring to CBS. And, and that, I think his, that's what ended the Twilight Zone. And I think his lifestyle reflected that, yes. Mike. One of the things that uh, that I learned from having read the uh, recent book authored by his daughter Anne, titled "As I Knew Him," my dad Rod Serling, she noted, for example, that during the school year they lived in Los Angeles so that he could do his work with the Hollywood Film Studios. However, they spent their summers in Upper State New York, and he literally transferred his wife, his daughters, and his precious pets with him in both venues, and he made sure that they had that nice summer activities that he grew up with in New York. And it's interesting, uh, what Anne Surly notes is that before it became fashionable, and nowadays it seems so many people do this, Rod Serling was the precursor for the so-called bi-coastal lifestyle. 
And he clearly saw uh, a dichotomy there. And he basically viewed L.A. was the place where he worked, but where he really lived and enjoyed life was in upper state New York. Exactly. During the summertime. Yes, yes. He was. Uh, he, he enjoyed uh, being in, uh, in upstate New York and spending time there. You know, we were talking earlier, just a few, a few minutes ago, about the fact that television had sort of, I guess, grown so much. His work basically would sometimes become watered down because of decisions by sponsors or network heads. For example, in reviewing uh, online, uh, doing some research about Rod Serling's life, there was a line in Requiem for a Heavyweight regarding a uh, match. Somebody says, you got a match? Well, that line was scratched because one of the sponsors was a lighter company. On another program, a completely different one that he did, that was sponsored by the Ford Motor Company, they had a backdrop of the city of uh, New York. They painted out the Chrysler building. Things like that, that's just to give two very, very small examples, are things that Rod Serling would face almost on a daily basis well, his, when he was writing. Absolutely, Smitty. His phone would ring, and even some more very subtle items in his teleplays caught the eye of primarily sponsors. It was well known that General Mills, whoever produced Cheerios, pulled out of sponsoring the Twilight Zone because of an episode, remember Anthony Fremont, Little Billy Mummy. He was six years old, and he could wish people away, and he basically took captive this small community. Well, during that time, there was a controversy in 1963 about the levels of sugar that were put in children's cereals and how it was affecting their behavior to the point where they became megalomania, Freaks, uh, sociopathic, and there was a huge study. Harvard was doing a study, and uh, American Medical Journal was doing a write-up, and along comes Serling with this script about this little boy who controls an entire small town. And I think it was Sugar Smacks, Post. Yeah, I now, it now comes to me, Post, Sugar Smacks, or Kellogg's. I'm not sure. It doesn't matter, but a big heavy hitter with a lot of money pulls out and says, oh, no, we're not going to be a part of this. Mm-hmm. So that's what he was grappling with all the time, because you live or die in television and, of course, in broadcast terrestrial radio, of course, on the level of sponsorship, the checkbooks that come that's out. That's exactly right. So he did lose a lot of money. Mike, since you're an alumni of the USC Film School, can you imagine what it must have been like to have Rod Serling as your teacher? Because as I recall, and Gilbert, perhaps you can affirm this for me, I believe at the end of his life, he was a teacher at Ithaca College in New York. Correct. And I have to wonder that at that stage of his life, how many uh, creative souls he could inspire with his own life story and how real and how uh, amazing that must have been. What would that have been like, Mike? Well, it was amazing because I had a a friend of mine who also, he was in the year before me. Rod Serling lived in Pacific Palisades. And my buddy worked at a Hughes Markets in Pacific Palisades. And who walks in one night but Rod Serling? Walks in and he's doing his shopping. He has his cart. And, of course, my friend being like, like I had to get out and go talk to him. And they had a very interesting conversation, and he's Mr. Serling. I, you know what? I'm at, I'm at film school, and I just so admire your work. And I'm just wondering, could you give me something? Just give me an idea. I need an idea because I've got a paper due. And I, the way he told it has been many years, so I'm, I'm just piecing this together. But he said, "What?" Well, and he rubs his chin and kind of rolls his eyes around as Serling would do. And then he had that little smirk. He goes, "How about?" A guy being pulled over by a highway patrolman 
and he's not sure what he's done. But he's pulled over at the side of the freeway as the other cars drive by. And this big, burly, 250-pound highway patrolman walks up to him very slowly and suspiciously, puts his head in the window and says, Excuse me, sir, can I ask you for some advice? And drops it. (laughs) That's how the man thought. I think about that story all the time. That was the inside out of true storytelling. Aiming for right field, but smacking one over the over the boards in left field and having everybody, wow, he can do that too. What an amazing story. And your story, Mike, affirms what I learned from one of my college professors, also at USC. He was a neighbor of Rod Serling's in the Pacific Palisades neighborhood in West Los Angeles. And it was my professor that actually used to take care of Mr. Serling's uh, garden and other related matters while they were summering in New York. And he uh, regaled us with a lot of personal anecdotes. What a wonderful person he was. And he had that sense of irony, and yet you could feel so close to him. You know, Rod Serling was was such a prolific writer uh, with Twilight Zone. After five years of airing Twilight Zone, there were 156 episodes. 92 of those were written by Rod Serling. He was a genius. He was just someone that had all these wonderful ideas and that would be able to present so many different angles. Again, as we as we mentioned, a lot of his programs dealt with wartime, <coughs> with uh, conflicts, with people being wronged, with uh, uh, you know people uh, that needed to be treated correctly with respect. And they ran the gamut. The episodes ran the gamut from true sci-fi uh, episodes to episodes that were more of a of a social commentary. Gilbert, I believe that when you talk about his enormous and prolific production of episodes, 92, I believe you cited. Yes. It is my understanding that he kept a tape recorder by his bedside and that oftentimes at all hours of the day and night, in fact, his daughter Anne discusses this in the book that I referenced earlier, that he would literally dictate his ideas into the tape recorder or he would write them down. And also his brother affirmed that Serling was a very heavy smoker. He smoked four or five packs of cigarettes a day all of his life. And so he was very, very much consumed by the creative writing process. In fact, it was said later on, and I believe, uh, Mike, you might have some insights about this, that it was almost as if he felt that he needed to get it all out before there was any uh, degrading in his talents. Well, he was certainly a man of premonition and a renaissance man and a seer and a seeker. So that is probably the bane of every creative writer is wondering when you're going to lose your stuff. I've been there. Uh, I've read stories of writers who were furious, raging alcoholics who were in total fear that they were going to lose their stuff when they've had to get sober and their stuff got better. Say what you will, but... As Serling's career evolved past the days of the Twilight Zone, I won't say his material got better, but his writing became much more cerebral. You'll have to agree, George, even with certain- the Night Gallery. Compare compare Twilight Zone episodes to Night Gallery episodes, and I think he just read ran with it and said, I've got to best myself at every minute. There's a sophistication to that. We discussed, I believe it was my very first time I was on this program, about his work on the screenplay for the original Planet of the Apes featuring Charlton Heston. And in that movie, Mike, 
you would note that he was able to utilize all of the social issues of the day back in the mid to late to uh, to 1960s where there was a lot of hot issues dealing with race relations, gender differences, and so forth, and science versus religion. He weaved all of those together in the Planet of the Apes, and then there was that sharp ending where suddenly Charlton Heston walks on the beach, and what does he find? They've been on Earth the entire time, and they see that Statue of Liberty half buried in the sand. What a sense of irony, and I think that was a certain aspect about Serling that was reflected by a lot of other people that adopted that same style. You know, Twilight Zone, airing from 1959 through uh, 1964, this is also an era when we were looking towards space, George, tying into what you were just saying right now. It was also an era when we were concerned about uh, the Cold War, and we were concerned about a nuclear attack from the Soviets at that time period. And a lot of his episodes, a lot of the episodes of Twilight Zone reflect that. Uh, that we're traveling to space, we're going to space, we're going to the moon, we're going to other planets, or some of his episodes did deal with the post-apocalyptic world after a nuclear holocaust. Uh, several episodes deal about that. Some episodes deal also with the threat. I think the the one that comes to mind is the shelter. Yes. That one where they think that there's going to be a nuclear attack, but really there isn't, but it brings out the the barbarity and the brutality of a neighborhood. Yes. Um, again, dealing with a post-nuclear attack, Time Enough at Last, with yes. Burgess Meredith, which also has a very ironic ending, as we've noted. And Gilbert, to follow your line of thought here, mm-hmm. think about now. We're in the 21st century, more than 50 years removed from the last episode that was ever aired on CBS. Yes on a first-run basis. And yet, when Malaysian 370 disappeared last year off the radar maps, and still we don't know what happened to that aircraft, I don't know how many times I kept hearing people refer to the classic Twilight Zone episode, The Odyssey of Flight 33. Where did Malaysian Airlines go? Did they go back into the past or into the future, like uh, the Twilight Zone episode? And what's interesting about that is that Not only did people make that connection with Twilight Zone, but we were reminded how technically proficient he was because, as I recall, that episode which featured John Anderson as the pilot, that it was regarded as being technically as perfect a film as you could want because I believe that Mr. Serling's brother was involved with the airline industry. He was a consultant for that episode, and I think we were talking about this before we went to to air. That is one of the most technically accurate episodes of The Twilight Zone. An ordinary circumstance. You're on a jet flight, and suddenly you've disappeared off the map. Where did you go? In our last episode, our last show, we, we talked about Leonard Nimoy who did, in search of, who did a special on the Bermuda Triangle and used the notes of a piece that Rod Serling had put together about an episode that would revolve around the Bermuda Triangle. So fast forward up to the Malaysia airline incident, Bermuda Triangle, disappearance, uh, call it what you will. Uh, I've talked to a lot of Navy guys who uh, never believed in ghosts. And they were stationed aboard a particular ship, and now they are firm believers in ghosts and poltergeists and whatnot. We're not going to go too far off in that direction. Just picture a man, a man, Rod Serling, who had a mind open and fertile enough to leave his regular beliefs and his convictions 
and his philosophies and open his mind, if even in his writing desk, for things that probably aren't, but what if they could be? And he was the master storyteller of the what if. The what if. And we're going to have a lot more what if coming in just a moment. We're going to pause right now for a retro commercial, and we're going to continue looking back at the Twilight Zone and at Rod Serling. So don't go away. There's much more to come. You're listening to Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. Get wild dude cream oil, Charlie. It keeps your hair in trim. You see, it's non-alcoholic, Charlie. It's made with soothing lanolin. You better get wild root cream oil, Charlie. Start using it today. You'll find that you will have a tough time, Charlie, keeping all those gals away. Wild Root Cream Oil keeps your hair handsome and healthy looking, neat but not greasy. Gives you confidence in your appearance all day long. Get a bottle or handy unbreakable tube. Get Wild Root right away. And welcome back, all you cool cats. I'm here in the Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside Studio with my good friends, Gilbert Smith and Mike Bragg. And yes, we are in the zone, the Twilight Zone. And what we're going to do right now is take this opportunity to revisit some of our favorite episodes. Some well-known, some not so well-known, but always with a twist. Take it away, Gilbert. Thanks, George. There's so many episodes that we can uh, that we can look at, you know, and um, I have to say that my favorite episode of The Twilight Zone is really one that I don't think is considered a sci-fi piece. It's more of a it's more of a sentimental piece and I think it's the one that really Rod Serling put most of his heart into because it's really uh, I guess for the want of a better term we can call it kind of a autobiographical piece and the, the title of that episode is Walking Distance. It's uh, it stars Gig Young. It's the story of a man and executive. Actually, I was going to say middle age, but really in in the story, I believe he's thirty six years old, who um, on a driving trip winds up near his hometown, the town of Homewood. And while he's getting his car, uh, the oil change in his car, he walks back to his hometown, and he walks back to find it as it was when he was a little boy. He would have expected him to go back to the town as it is now, but he goes back and it's completely as it was when he was a little boy, and he, he winds up finding himself. He sees himself, and and he goes and he uh, speaks to his parents, and uh, really what it's about, the story, what it's about, that all of us at one time or another in our lives, and perhaps maybe more than once in our lives, we all feel the need to go back to go back to our hometown, to go back to our high school, to go back to our old neighborhood, but not as the way that it is now, but that we wish we could go back to the way that it was when we remembered it, when we were there as children or as adolescents. It's, I think, a human emotion that all of us share from time to time, and Rod Serling certainly had that emotion, that the need of wanting to go back. And as he so beautifully paraphrased it in the narration for this episode, sometimes uh, a man might look up and might hear the distant sounds of a calliope and of laughter, and 
he may have an errant wish to want to go back to that time period. I think it's a very touching episode. It's perhaps the most beautiful episode that was ever done. It had a musical score that was that was written just for it by Bernard Herrmann. And that's my favorite episode. I think it's a, it, it just really deals with emotion. It really deals with sometimes, which I know I've experienced, I think all, all of us have, just the desire. Sometimes you just think about something and you just wish you could go back to an earlier time. There's so many great episodes. That's my favorite one that sticks out. And we'll talk about a few others. George, how about you? What about your favorite episode? I think to go along with your poignancy, one that comes to mind, and as a teacher, I really appreciate this one so very much. It featured Donald Pleasance. The title of the episode was Changing of the Guard. And it's a teacher who is being forced into retirement. And as you noted, Gilbert, he had a sense of overwhelming emotion, almost uh, depression, wanting to take his life. And then in a moment of what one might call a miracle, he is able to have an encounter with a number of his students from previous generations, many of whom, actually all of whom, had uh, died, whether in combat or other aspects in life. And they all commented how much they appreciated what he taught them. He taught them the important things. I'm not talking about subject matter out of a textbook, but the important things of dealing and approaching things with with honor, with integrity, with great character. And he inspired and taught them these things so that they could go on and do courageous things in life. That's perhaps the most poignant episode. The other episode that comes to mind as a teacher, because I use it as a teaching tool, is one titled A Game of Pool, featuring Jonathan Winters as a long-deceased pool champion, and he faces a young and upcoming Jack Klugman. And it deals with the ramifications of game theory, a subject that I teach at the University of California, but also it talks about the aspects of winning and losing and the behavioral side And it teaches us not only about what it takes to be the best, but also the costs associated with that. Those are two that I think that come to mind in terms of what I do in terms of my occupation and my activities. And those are two examples, uh, Walking Distance and the one with Donald Pleasance, who really exemplifies one of the topics that keeps kind of recurring. And we were talking about the topics earlier. Um, Sentimentality. Yes. uh, The past. Uh, Another one that is one of my favorite episodes, George, is an episode titled Static. With Dean Jagger. With Dean Jagger. It's about an old bachelor who's living in an apartment building under the same roof with a woman that would have once been his wife. And that's also also brings in the social commentary about Serling's dislike of television. Yes. He pokes fun at the commercialism of television. But Dean Jagger, as the bachelor, goes and gets his old radio from the basement because he's so disgusted with television. He begins to hear these old radio programs from the past and Tommy Dorsey music and in a, in a confrontation between uh, him and the lady who would have perhaps been his wife, she says, you begin to get sentimental about this time period because it would have been our anniversary had we have gotten married. And he's wishing for a second chance, a chance to go back in time. And of course... We know the end, a little spoiler here, they do go back in time to 1940. Isn't that and, wonderful? And they have a second chance. Exactly. Isn't that wonderful? It's and wonderful. that is so like Serling that he is able to accomplish that. Well, you know, in so many Twilight Zone episodes involve the American family. It could involve the husband and wife. And you think of along those lines, how about Franklin Everett Sloan with the slot machine? Franklin, Franklin, yes. husband and wife. Uh, yes. Telly Savalas with the Takitina doll. That was an American family, and he would almost spoof or take a microscope and look deep into 
deep into the soul of the American family in many, many of his episodes. What about troubled couples? You know, there's um, a one-hour episode. It's my favorite one from that season, but it was titled Passage on the Lady Anne. It featured Joyce Van Patten. It's a young couple, uh, and they've only been married perhaps five or six years, but they're having problems in their marriage because the husband is consumed entirely with focusing on business. So what did they do? This takes place in the early 60s, and to try to rekindle the love and the intimacy of their marriage, they decide to take a transatlantic cruise, and they end up being on board a ship that is filled entirely with elderly couples from a different era. And as a result of that they have an opportunity to see what their marriage can be based on love and respect if they give each other the attention they deserve. And this one also has an unusual ending as well because the couple is able to accomplish their goal, which is to rediscover their love for one another. But again, I'm going to provide a spoiler alert here. The couple is dispatched into a lifeboat, given a signal so another ship nearby can pick them up a few hours later, And that ship, the Lady Anne, literally sails off into the clouds, uh, you know, into the fog, if you will. And we don't know whatever happens to it because it never reaches port. All those couples that had been on what would be called a Twilight Zone version of Love Boat (laughs) basically all remain together in another venue. That's so interesting you picked that episode to talk about. And again, uh, going back, what, 10 minutes ago when I talked about movies that had... Not only give an homage, but we're definitely out-and-out knockoffs of some of Serling's work. How about the movie called Frequency with Dennis Quaid? He's a fireman, and he could hear, he had a fire scanner radio, an old tube radio. His father was a firefighter who had been killed in a, in a dreadful fire. And he could turn on this radio, this receiver, this monitor, and listen to the fire calls and listen to his father. This was a this was a movie, probably in the late '80s, I would think. But that had to be from one of Serling's works because that's how Serling rolled. We talked about Serling as commentator of the American Family. Serling as commentator of space exploration. We might want to take a minute or two to talk about Serling as a as producer of comedies. Some of those Twilight Zones were actually comedies. Uh, they were dark comedies because they wouldn't have been in the Twilight Zone if they weren't dark comedies. But I'm always reminded of Andy Devine. We yes, talked about Mr. Frisbee. In our show notes, Mr. Frisbee, the guy, <laughs> the guy we all knew, the old guy who knew stories. The guy I knew was named Mr. Earl Embry, who worked for the Santa Fe Railroad and talked about everything as far as you could imagine in the years of the Depression and working as a porter on the Santa Fe Railroad lines. Mr. Frisbee, on the other hand, was an expert on everything. There was a movie decades later called Big Fish, I believe. That You'll think about that, George, because I know you had to have watched that, Albert Finney. And he was a big, fat guy, like Andy Devine, and he would tell these yarns, and nobody would believe him. So he set forth trying to prove it. In Andy Devine's case... He had an audience that took everything he said at face value. Remember talking about that show, Smitty? Absolutely, and it was uh, that it was funny because the uh, the aliens that came believed everything that all this all these yarns that he would spin, and they captured him to take him into that uh, spaceship. And of course, the, again, spoilers, but I'm sure everybody has seen these episodes. 
Andy Devine was able to make his escape by playing his harmonica, which generated some noises that uh, just about uh, drove these these, uh, aliens mad. Serling always had a sense of whimsy and a childlike aspect to his uh, viewing of the world. I learned that he was a huge, huge baseball fan, and he loved the Brooklyn Dodgers. And in a tribute to the departure of the Brooklyn Dodgers, he had an episode that was also written with humor titled The Mighty Casey. And it turned out to be a robot that was invented to play baseball. And in an interesting twist, Serling mentions, because this is in the early 60s when the Dodgers were at the height of their dynasty with uh, Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale as their pitchers, and Serling makes the reference about this team that left the East Coast, relocated to Los Angeles, and they had a couple of pitchers that won several World Series, and they pitched like nothing human. And it was a direct reference to Koufax and Drysdale, but also a wistful aspect because he's also now in Los Angeles missing the way it used to be with baseball in New York when it had three teams. Absolutely. And apart from that whimsical look, of course, there were the episodes that were more of a science fiction Uh, One that comes to mind for me is The Eye of the Beholder, which is the episode where uh, this supposedly this woman that's horribly disfigured is under bandages. And you at first you see the doctors are all and the doctors and nurses are all in shadow. You don't really see their their faces. It was an episode that was blocked out like a ballet almost. It was so, so intricate. And then the punchline is. The bandages are removed, and here we see this uh, this beautiful girl, actually Donna Douglas, who appeared on the Beverly Hillbillies. Ellie May. Ellie May. And then we see the doctors and the nurses, who to us are horribly disfigured. They, their, their faces are just something out of a nightmare. And yet they're the norm on this planet, in this world. They are the norm, the beautiful girl is the one that is different. And that is another episode that has social commentary as well from Serling. How about... The Obsolete Man, featuring Burgess Meredith, and he is a librarian in a futuristic society, and as Mike noted earlier, Serling using the future as an opportunity to talk about something, and this collectivist, totalitarian society is trying to subjugate individual liberty and freedom. They've banned books, and so this librarian, played by Burgess Meredith, he's been condemned to execution. And so what do we find him doing? He chooses an interesting method of, uh, of execution, and he is found reading aloud in front of the cameras that are being shown to the whole uh, country the book of Psalms. And he's reading some of my favorite biblical passages. And what ends up happening, he's visited by the commissar. And Burgess Meredith locks the door, and he said, well, commissar, now... Everyone is going to be able to witness who's more powerful, the obsolete librarian reading his Bible or the commissar with the state. Mm -hmm. And what ends up happening is the commissar doesn't want to die with Burgess Meredith because it turns out he has requested that there be an explosive device set off. Mm -hmm. And at the very end, again, spoiler alert, the commissar says, in the name of God, please let me out. And then Burgess Meredith, in an incredibly moving sequence, says, yes, I will let you out in the name of God. He opens the door. He lets the commissar go out. He could have saved himself, but he remained in there reading his psalms. And then a nasty surprise awaits the commissar when he gets back to his office. He has been declared obsolete. He is declared as an enemy of the state. And he is executed right on the spot, literally torn to pieces. And Rod Serling, in a very serious voiceover, one of the most serious that I can ever recall, 
speaks for the generations who have given their lives to preserve the individual liberty and freedom given to us by God. It's really quite a moving episode and uh, one that, again, has a, a social commentary and such a strong point. So there's so many episodes that we could talk about and so many of these great artists, Burgess Meredith, Gig Young, Fritz Weaver, uh, William Shatner. I mean, there's just so many, so many actors. Robert Redford. Robert Redford. Robert Cummings. Exactly. Robert Duvall. So there's so many of them that time will not allow us to uh, name all of them. But, of course, uh, we remember them in some of our favorite Twilight Zone episodes. Well, we're going to continue, and we're going to have the last portion of our program coming up in just a moment. So we want you to stay tuned and, and continue with us here as we remember the Twilight Zone and Rod Serling on Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. Hi-ho, hey, hey, chew your little troubles away. Hi-ho, hey, hey, chew her wriggly spearmint and gum. The work goes faster, smoother too. Life seems brighter when you chew. Hi-ho, hey, hey, chew her wriggly spearmint and gum. Welcome back to Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside here on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. I'm Gilbert Smitty-Smith, along with my good buddies Mike Bragg and George Halalakos. We're talking about the Twilight Zone and Rod Serling, and you're hearing under our retro commercials these musical bridges from uh, some of the episodes. This is, a, this is part of the, uh, the beautiful score that was written for the episode Walking Distance by Bernard Herrmann, uh, a score that was specifically written for that episode. So... Not only did the Twilight Zone encompass top-notch writing by uh, Rod Serling and by... Also, we didn't mention some of the other writers. Charles Beaumont, Ray Bradbury, Earl Hammer Jr., George Clayton Johnson, Richard Matheson, Reginald Rose. But also beautiful music uh, that was composed for these episodes by such people as Bernard Herrmann, who composed this uh, piece here for the episode Walking Distance. Well, let's conclude. Uh, we're going to do the last portion of our program here. You know, the Twilight Zone, still a very popular program in reruns. I think we can probably say that uh, Twilight Zone must be like I Love Lucy. It's aired somewhere in the world, or it's airing somewhere in the world, you know, since it originally aired, uh, back since it stopped airing back in 64. Still a cultural icon that is still very much uh, in the public eye. Correct me if I'm wrong, gentlemen, but doesn't the Sci-Fi Network run Twilight Zone marathons at New Year's and also at Fourth of July? Yes, they do. And 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 actually, George, prior to that, station KTLA in Los Angeles would do that. They would do Twilight Zone marathons. I think Sci-Fi Channel picked that up from from them and kind of is carrying the. Uh, it's torch. something to look forward to. It is. It is. And they've also have the Twilight Zone episodes or a good part of them on YouTube. 
And for the younger listeners who live by their smartphones, you can you can bring up what we're talking about on any number of Twilight Zone episodes by going to YouTube and just searching Twilight Zone episodes or Rod Serling, and you can grab some episodes right off of there. But one thing I've noticed about Rod, Rod Serling and the Twilight Zone work, you know, I'll watch the I Love Lucy reruns, and they say somewhere in the world I Love Lucy's running all the time, or Family Affair and these things, especially with Me TV and Antenna TV. It's like, wow, I must have really matured or gained or lost my concentration over the last 30 years since this was on because this is rather boring. I barely get through 10 minutes of the stuff they put on that were very compelling and very fun and exciting and informative and entertaining back in the 70s when I watched them. One thing I have to say about the Twilight Zones, you're going to sit there, you're going to watch a whole episode. No, No matter how many times you've seen it, you may sit there and mimic every line because you recited all the monologue and dialogue, but you're not typically going to get up from a Twilight Zone episode because you're so hungry to watch how it ends again or to see how it evolves. And it's like watching The Godfather, George. You see something different every time you watch. It's almost like visiting with old friends again. I was going to note that Serling's work is of such high quality. I have several copies of Twilight Zone books that were authored by Serling. And I have to tell you that I have read and reread these stories so many times, and yet they still resonate. Serling was a great writer. He was not just suited uh, you know, for the venues that he worked in, but also on the printed page. And these are, I believe, Mike, have a great deal of collectible value as well. Mine's a hard copy edition. Wow. I would think that any of that Twilight Zone, there wasn't a lot of Twilight Zone memorabilia other than many books. I'm sure there's posters, but a lot of those are in reprint now. Uh, Rod Serling wrote a couple of biographies of other people. Yes. And he, I believe he was in the process of writing his own biography when he went in for the heart surgery and didn't make it out of the surgery room too long. But I think somebody picked up that project and is finishing it, but you can... You can go anywhere and find volumes on the life and work of Rod Serling. Absolutely. And, and, you know, there was life after the Twilight Zone. We were talking earlier that he, Rod Serling taught, he lectured, he did much more writing, and he had another series that came up uh, a few years after that, George. In the early 70s, he had uh, a very, very well-done program titled Night Gallery that did a further variation, an exploration of supernatural, paranormal, and some science fiction themes, and what I think is interesting is that how he leveraged and extended his classic work done on Twilight Zone. Earlier, I referenced the episode, They're Tearing Down Tim Riley's Bar, which would basically be a sequel to the Walking Distance episode seen in Twilight Zone. But there are two other noteworthy episodes, one of which won uh, an award for television excellence. It's titled The Messiah on Mott Street featuring Edward G. Robinson and Yafet Koto. And it's about a young boy who goes in search of the Messiah to bring him forth to help his ailing grandfather who is deathly ill. And in point of fact, spoiler alert once again, the Messiah does come and he does bring forth a miraculous recovery and healing. Serling was a very spiritual man and this resonates in his work. Another episode that comes to mind is uh, titled... The Ring with Red Velvet Ropes, featuring Chuck Connors and Gary Lockwood. And it's very similar to The Game of Pool that I also mentioned that featured Jonathan Winters and Jack Klugman as champion pool players. Except in this instance, it's now uh, heavyweight boxing champions with Chuck Connors holding the unofficial title having to defend it against Gary Lockwood. 
And it also has a supernatural twist to it as well, because it turns out that once you win the championship, as you did in a game of pool, you're obligated to keep on proving it and to take on every other challenger that comes along. So being the best at anything requires the necessity and the will to keep on proving it. So once again, Serling used Night Gallery to extend further on his classic work in Twilight Zone. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about then Rod Serling as a self-help motivator through some of his Twilight Zone episodes. You speak of Jack Klugman. How about... How about the episode of the uh, Jack Klugman as the trumpet player, and he gets hit by the car? Yes, and, and he, he ends up, up meeting he ends up another meeting, musician. Yes, the archangel. Yes, Gabriel. Yep. With what the, a remarkable with the trumpet who tells them you do have the choice between life and death. Klugman's an alcoholic. He's a down and out trumpet player. Life's not going very well for him. I think his name was Joey Crown. Yes, which is, mm. I always thought was just such a perfect name for a down and out alcoholic trumpet player. I thought I would take that for my own. But Jack Klugman did uh, a a number, I believe, three Twilight Zone episodes. He did the one you referred to in in the Joey Crown, the trumpet player. But interesting because the story in that episode, George, with Joey Crown, the trumpet player, is you always have a chance to change it and dictate your destiny. And I think what's interesting about Serling is no matter what type of work you look at, whether it's his great movies like... Requiem for a Heavyweight, Seven Days in May, Planet of the Apes, The Man, about, uh, interestingly enough, The Man, I believe, was about our first African-American president, written in 1970. This was a man that truly focused on the spiritual side. It wasn't just about accomplishment. It was about the type of person you are. And he emphasized strength of character as being so important. And that resonated in all of his work. Exactly right. Rod Serling's lifetime of of work. And on May 3rd of 1975, Rod Serling suffered a minor heart attack and was hospitalized. And after a second heart attack a couple of weeks later, doctors decided that he needed to have open heart surgery, which at that time was uh, much more risky than it is now. While on the operating table, Rod Serling suffered another heart attack and he died two days later. At 50 years old, still a young man, and uh, we remember him and still revel in all the work that he left us. And Twilight Zone and Night Gallery have outlived their creator. So true, as evidenced by every three-day holiday across the United States with the niche channels, the specific unique channels such as sci-fi, pay homage all weekend to the life and times and genius of Mr. Rod Serling. Oh yes, we did forget something, didn't we? We forgot to introduce you to the monster. His name is Father Time. He's known as 30 Minutes in other circles, including our studio. He hangs on the studio wall, tick-tocking away, here at Galaxy. He has a cute little glass face and two hands, one for the hours and one for the minutes. He is absolutely in charge. Until the next episode of Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight, right here, just a microphone away from the Twilight Zone. Join us again on Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight. We are always thrilled to present you the finest in baby boomer memories and memorabilia. 
it was a total thrill having George Halalakos in with Smitty and I today. Uh, we have more exciting episodes. This was our hour special episode. We have a few more in line for you. Most of our episodes are 30 minutes. Either way, you can listen in on all of them, free for the taking, free for the downloading, by going to Apple iTunes and just searching Baby Boomer Radio in the podcast tab of the Apple iTunes Store. And you'll see us right there. We've got almost 180 episodes, if not 180. We're shooting for 200 this year. And uh, we're so happy to present those to you. You can also please come over to our Facebook site and join our family of Facebook friends. It's building every day. Uh, We share ideas and notes and thumbs up most of the time on our shows. If you do have ideas for a show or want to comment about a show that we've produced here at Galaxy, we definitely invite you to email us at galaxymoonbeamnightsite at gmail.com. You can check our website. It's like one of those past episodes of Twilight Zone. It hasn't been updated in a while, but uh, the next time you see it, it will be dated uh, with a blog from George for June 26, 2049, or maybe not. (laughs) But anyway, there are different ways to find us, and we're always so thrilled to have you listening in here. We produce our shows, and we gather the energy as a direct result of the wonderful voltage sent over by our listeners. And you're all over the place, and we love you all, and we do thank you for supporting us now in our fifth year. So come back and listen to us again. Keep an ear out for the next episode of Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight right here on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. This is the Galaxy Nostalgia Network.